there are two powerful forces that run like threads through all of our lives, our relationships, our meditation. We'll meet these forces in times of conflict and crisis in our lives. We'll meet these forces in times of loss and separation. We'll meet these forces many times when we are making new beginnings in our lives and also when there are endings. We meet these forces in those times in our lives when we are making changes and transitions, when we are letting go of one thing, not knowing what the next thing is to come. They are the forces of faith and of fear. It is important for us in our lives that we come to know them very intimately, the way that they mold so many of the decisions and changes we make, the way that these forces can so very much mold our sense of vision and possibility the way that these forces may hold us back or lead us to go forward. They lie beneath so many of our life's experiences. Faith is one of those forces, one of those qualities of the heart. It has a very powerful effect upon us. Faith is a quality that allows us to open, to trust, and often to love. Fear often appears in many moments, as we've seen here, and it too has a powerful effect on us. Fear makes us want to contract, to close down, to avoid. Sometimes it seems to stop us loving, connecting, Because fear has the effect of making us at times feel suspicious and mistrustful. Certainly it has the power to isolate us, to make us feel very separate and apart. Faith is a powerful moving quality. It's an energetic quality at times that brings with it a tremendous amount of courage Courage, certainly, that is needed in our lives to be able to move, to be able to bring about changes and transitions, to be able to let go. Faith has that quality of courage that allows us to take risks in our lives. Fear is also a moving quality. But it is a movement away from. Fear is also looking for something. But often when we are afraid, what is very much at the forefront of our consciousness is looking for safety. Because when we are fearful, then we view change as a threat. Unpredictability becomes an enemy. 
Faith is also a resting quality. It allows us to live in a way with few demands, with few demands for guarantees, for proof, or for evidence, whereas fear is not very restful. Fear is that longing, that deep inner demand for certainty. Faith is very strengthening. It's a strengthening and balancing quality that actually allows us to meet and be present with the difficult and the painful in our lives. Whereas when there is fear very predominant in our hearts or consciousness, we want to flee from the difficult. It's those times when we want to jump away, when we want to jump away from the moment into some other moment, some other experience, some other feeling. And sometimes if we feel unable to jump away, then we seek the nearest refuge. And the nearest refuge, if we can't jump away, often feels to lie in our capacity simply to distance to avoid, or to find a refuge in distractedness, fantasies, daydreams, the substitutes of being present. Faith is, by its very nature, very open. It allows us to question, to seek, to explore a sense of possibility, to reach for what we don't yet know. This is what we're doing in practice all the time. We are actually reaching for what we don't yet know. Faith allows us to, and encourages us, positively encourages us, to extend our horizons beyond those which are already familiar and known to us. Whereas when we are fearful, we very much desire. There is desire there too, the desire for the security of knowing, of having to find shelter within what is familiar. There is much in our lives that is unknown, most of it. The next moment, the next day, you don't know how it will be when you leave here tomorrow. You didn't know how it would be when you came. You don't know, none of us know, what is going to take place in our lives from one moment to the next. Faith allows us to be very receptive to that as a teacher, as a source of great richness. Whereas when we feel more dominated by fear in our lives, we actually are not very friendly towards the unknown. More we want to control it. We want to try and create certainties. It is also through faith that I think we can connect with a sense of mystery in our lives because we actually really only find a sense of mystery when we are not so preoccupied with controlling and knowing and having. 
that mystery we are touched by comes through not knowing. It's often through fear we get very big servings of familiarity. But we are often deprived of a sense of mystery. Another quality of faith is its immense and bottomless patience. An immense and bottomless patience. Where there is not a demand for answers or resolutions. Where we see when we are fearful that comes with it agitation. You can feel when you're fearful how much agitation there is in the body, how much there is in the mind, how much agitation we seem to have with the world, and how often in that agitation we feel so very impatient. Impatient in a way of, we want something to end, or we want something to begin, or we want a resolution, we want answers. Faith also has, it holds within it, also an immense calmness and ease of being. It is a refuge. It is a refuge very important in our lives. In those times of storm, in those times of not knowing, in those times of change, faith in not knowing, faith that allows us to rest with what is, trusting in our capacity to embrace whatever unfolds. It is a tremendous refuge in our lives and in our paths. We can see there is no refuge in fear. Fear when we are afraid. We are anything but calm or at ease. And so when we are fearful and not being able to find refuge within ourselves, so too does it seem that there is no refuge for us anywhere in the world. We feel uneasy everywhere. Feeling that there is no refuge for us anywhere, inwardly or outwardly in the world, we tend to often feel threatened, sometimes even a victim. In a retreat, we have a very intimate introduction to both faith and fear. It seems that they don't rest easily together, that they are not easy companions. Sometimes it feels they are a place of struggle, but they are actually not opponents. The way to faith is not through trying to get rid of fear. That is not the way to faith. Trying to get rid of fear either either will give us mastery, which is a very shallow refuge, or it will make an opponent out of fear and give us struggle. It is actually through fear very often that we discover the power of faith. Through befriending fear in all its many guises of doubt, of anxiety, of aversion, of greed and resistance, through our willingness to be present in all of these expressions of fear, of learning how to rest in a place of great calmness with them, That is where we discover faith. Thomas Merton once said, Through love and prayer are learned in the hour when love becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. 
This is so true for us. In moments of great struggle, of great unease, of not having, it seems, anything to rely upon, that is the moment when we see that there actually are no choices except to return to this moment that we are in with a willingness to befriend it. There is truly nowhere else to go. There are different qualities. <clears throat> we might say different varieties or different levels of faith that we encounter in our lives and practice. And we shouldn't think of faith as being some sort of prerequisite to deepening. Or we shouldn't think of faith as something that we have to attain. We actually already have faith. Otherwise, we would not be here. But there are different qualities and different ways in which that faith does manifest and the ways in which it deepens. One quality of faith that we may have encountered or encounter here in our lives is, a, is more of a very kind of delicate, a very fragile sense of faith or trust that often feels to have within it already an element of fear. Sometimes that faith arises because feeling insecure in ourselves, feeling anxious or uneasy within ourselves, we find ourselves wanting, sometimes desperately wanting, something to believe or trust in. It might be that we're looking for someone that we can believe in or have confidence in. It might be a Dharma teacher. It might be a person we're seeking to have a relationship with. Sometimes out of desperately wanting something to trust in, we find ourselves exploring the bookstores, exploring the spiritual supermarket, looking for the right system, you know, the infallible system, the invulnerable system to take refuge in. This kind of faith that has this element of fear and need within it can actually be really rather a dangerous quality of faith that actually may end up depriving us of freedom. A freedom, and sometimes we do need to acknowledge that at times in our lives of great anxiety and insecurity, we may actually feel rather willing to surrender freedom because it seems that by surrendering freedom, we are also freeing ourselves of a fear which may feel to be intolerable. Yet in this faith that is mixed with fear, we see what happens. The outcome is kind of predictable when faith is with, mixed with fear. We have relationships, certainly, and what kind of relationships are they? Often of possessiveness or dependency. Sometimes relationships which are terribly oppressive. Because this faith is so much arising out of a sense of need, often one of the greatest fears that is giving birth to that sense of need and dependency is our very fear of being alone. Our fear of being alone. There's a great sage who once said, to the unawakened, aloneness is equated with death. 
So out of this fear of being alone, which one is, is perhaps one of our most primal fears in life, that we have equated aloneness with isolation and separation, it can lead to very destructive, the guru-destructive, guru-disciple relationships. It can lead us to being so identified with, with particular systems or beliefs It is perhaps a phase that some of us need to go through in our lives. I know I certainly went through that phase when I started practicing, you know, when I really didn't have much of an idea what I was doing at all. And so I got very caught up in the appearance of things and very much looking to be someone, very much looking to become someone. And it seemed the easiest way to become someone was to become someone that looked like other someones. That seemed to be the most direct path, you know. So when I first started practicing, I started practicing in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And very quickly, very quickly, I went from this spaced out hippie to being this incredibly sort of conventional Tibetan. You know, I had Tibetan clothes, I learned Tibetan, I ate Tibetan food, I, um, everything I did was just according to how other people did things, you know, because that seemed to be offering me some sort of identity. I'm sure it was totally intolerable to the Tibetans. <laughs> and then, of course, after a while, you know, as we do sometimes, I am... Um, changed my, turned one system in for another, you know, and I became a Theravadan. And, you know, in becoming a Theravadan, I had to buy a new wardrobe and (laughs) start studying another language, and I was equally intolerable. Looking back on it now, it's actually rather embarrassing but at the, in the time, it seemed like this was a really good thing to do. It was very secure. It was very much a sense of belonging, of being someone. And yet, really understanding that, you know, so many times a belief system that we pick up in our lives and adopt, it is really an expression of insecure faith. That is what it is. I deeply hope that no one leaves here saying, I am a Vipassana meditator. If we belong, if we are someone, that seems to give us the authority we feel to be lacking within ourselves. The authority of being able to say, I am, I have, I know. And being able to defend that position with great intensity. And it is actually the intensity with which we defend those positions of having and knowing and being that actually is the manifestation of how great our identification is. This fragile sense of faith is very easy to recognize, but it's not always easy to let go of. It is true in all spiritual journeys and all spiritual paths that they ask for a quality of surrender. 
a surrender of trying to control, a surrender of trying to figure everything out, a surrender of separation. In every spiritual path, we are invited to submerge ourselves, to, to know it deeply, not just to be a spectator, but to absorb this learning or this path in a very deep, profound way within ourselves. Insecure faith sometimes asks of us a very kind of perverse, sort of distorted sense of surrender. Sometimes it asks of us a surrender of discriminating wisdom, the surrender of inner confidence or inner authority in exchange for safety and belief and affirmation. There's another quality of faith which is called a validated faith, which is actually founded upon our experience, which is founded upon that which we can see and experience within ourselves. It can, it's not only in a spiritual path. It might be in relationship with a friend or a partner who has been incredibly steady with us through times of difficulty and conflict, who is always offered acceptance and love that we can rely upon. So we have faith in them. Sometimes the faith is with a teacher who, again, has that quality of reliability, of holding close to their hearts our well-being rather than their well-being, who gives, who supports, who accepts, who honors us. We have faith in them. Sometimes it's a faith and a practice you know, a, a way of practicing that we have practiced in our lives, that we have seen very directly, brings greater happiness, greater understanding, greater clarity, that it is true in our experience, and we have faith in it. This is a faith that is built upon what we see, what is visible, what is knowable to us. There's another quality of faith that is sometimes a very kind of intense uh, emerging of faith that arises especially in times of tremendous pain or crisis or conflict in our lives. And that's more like the, the faith that is a little bit like um, hope. You know, it's like that, that strange saying that says there are no non-believers in the foxholes. You know, it's like hope, wanting something to save us almost, wanting something to, yes, to offer us a lifeline. And there's a story I'd like to read to you. There was an atheist who fell off a cliff, and as he tumbled downward, he caught hold of a small tree. There he hung with rocks a thousand feet below, knowing he wasn't able to hold on much longer. Then an idea came. God, he shouted with all his might. Silence. No one responded. God, he shouted again. If you exist, save me, and I promise I shall believe in you and teach others to believe. Silence again. Then he almost let go in shock as he heard a mighty voice boom across the canyon. That's what they all say when they're in trouble. <laughs> no, God, no, he shouted out more hopeful now. I'm not like the others. I've already begun to believe, having heard your voice. 
Now all you have to do is save me and I shall proclaim your name to the ends of the earth. Very well, said the voice. I shall save you. Let go of the branch. Let go of the branch, yelled the distraught man. Do you think I'm crazy? (laughs) When faith is an insecure faith, it is often an attempt to move away from fear, to divorce ourselves from fear, to separate ourselves from fear. There is another quality of faith which is very crucial to our lives, to our practice, very crucial to our well-being and freedom. And that quality of faith makes no attempt to move away from fear, but instead holds within it the willingness to trust and to embrace and to befriend fear. In Pali, the language in which the Buddhist sutras were written, the word for faith is sada. And there isn't actually an English word which is an equivalent translation because sada includes within it the meaning of trust, of clarity, of confidence, and of devotion. And it is a primary foundation of all meditation practice. It is considered one of the greatest treasures It is a quality of faith that positively encourages investigation and inquiry. Actually, it almost encourages doubt. One of the most important suttas of the Buddha was the Kalama Sutta. When the Buddha, in speaking with a a community of people who came to him and said, how should we know who we can trust in? There are so many teachers who say they have the truth in the right way. How can we know who it is that we can actually have faith in? And the Buddha answered saying, don't trust in something just because it has hundreds of years of history behind it. Don't trust in something because thousands of people proclaim its truth. Don't trust in something because so many wise people seem to say it is the right way. Don't trust in something because it is written in many scriptures. Trust in that in which you can see in your own experience that this leads to happiness and to well-being, that this leads to the end of confusion and pain. This is where you should place your trust. Doubt is actually rather a miraculous quality. Sometimes doubt can be very paralyzing. But that is usually when doubt is being strengthened by our own aeons of conditioning that lead us to passivity or withdrawal. Doubt can also be a very creative feeling, a very creative quality because where do you, what do you do when you are doubtful? If you are not paralyzed, then when you are doubtful, you question. Is this true? When you are doubtful, you investigate. You look at something more closely. You explore it. You hold it in your experience. And you try it out. Is this true? Is this true? Does this lead to happiness? Does it lead to well-being? The place where doubt true doubt, creative doubt actually returns us, is to the very moment that we're in. 
is actually a very wonderful, at times a very wonderful and cultivated quality. What is really pointed out in the Kalama Sutra is the need to balance both faith and wisdom, to quality the question, to balance this devotedness of heart with the quality of investigation and discriminating wisdom. That balance is what leads us and encourages us to check out, to check things out, to explore it, to be patient with it, you know, almost as if we were blind and touching the face of someone we had never met. But the need to know is, is transmitted through our capacity to touch. The wisdom part is very important, as well as the devotion. It is the wisdom part that tells us that we can only t- really take refuge in our lives, in that which is true, in that which is liberating that frees us from suffering and delusion. There is no other refuge. All other refuges are false refuges. It is why this quality of faith, or sada, is called a treasure, because it is a seed of confidence, of determination, and of fearlessness in our practice, and of an unshakable love. In Buddhist teaching, one of the characteristics of enlightenment is an unshakable faith because something has been seen to be so true that that truth can never be uprooted. To look at this quality of faith that really sustains us in our practice and in our lives, it's not only a faith in what we can see and know, It is also a quality of faith that allows us to rest with ease and gladness in what we don't know. This is one of the greatest challenges in our lives and in our meditation, how to rest in the midst of an inner and outer process that is unfolding, that has no signs or marks of familiarity. This is our greatest challenge, how to rest in the midst of an inner outer process that has no signs or marks of familiarity. This speaks to much of our lives. How to rest there with stillness, with vulnerability, with receptivity, but a great inner confidence. Now it is faith that brings us here. And it is faith that sustains us in some of the most dark and uncertain places in our own journey. Most of us don't come to retreats because we are truly and deeply satisfied and content totally with our world or our perception of it. Most of us begin in a spiritual path and discipline, moved by a sense of intuition, a yearning for greatness of heart a yearning for possibility, a yearning to find profound peace and compassion, a yearning to find the end of conflict and separation. This voice of yearning, this voice of intuition, it is a powerful voice and it is actually also the voice of faith. It is a voice which is not just about some idealized state we hope to discover, part of the power of that voice is that it is also faith 
in ourselves. It is faith in ourselves, the possibility of our awakening, the possibility of our freedom, the possibility of our understanding, that everything that is spoken about and promised in the teaching applies also to us. And actually everything in this practice, everything in this teaching is actually an affirmation of that inner trust and possibility. That awakening, you know, it's not reserved for a kind of closed society. You know, it's not reserved for a special group of people who have impeccable karma, you know, or, you know, impeccable motivation or who've, you know, spent you know, so many lifetimes as bodhisattvas. You know, this is not mentioned in this teaching. You think of this whole history of this teaching, you know, it was never, it has always been a teaching of open-handedness. Always a a teaching of free giving, right from its earliest times when when the Buddha and his disciples just kind of wandered around in, you know, they sort of turned up, you know, and they'd, sit under a tree and people would gather around and they'd speak about the Dharma. And of course, according to the legends, everybody would be enlightened, you know, and then they'd wander on to the next village, you know, and reap another 500 arahants and, you know, and it went on and on. But never was it ever said, you know, oh, well, you know, let's kind of separate the kind of, you know, the sheep from the cows here, you know, and all those who are ripe for enlightenment go on the left and all those who are unworthy go on the right. This has never been the way. You notice it wasn't on your registration form. (laughs) Please confess here if you are inadequate or incapable of awakening, you know. This is not part of this teaching. Part of this teaching is the implicit confidence the absolutely implicit confidence that enlightenment or Buddha nature is the basic heritage and the basic birthright of all of us. It is the implicit promise of this dharma. Faith allows us to rest in that most wondrous place of not knowing. Now, with everything that we actually do on a retreat, we make the journey from what we know to what we don't know. When we begin a retreat, you didn't know how it was going to unfold. Some of you have been surprised, some of you pleasantly and some of you unpleasantly. You didn't know when you began this retreat, you know, whether you were going to spend it, you know, whether it was going to be terrific news or terrible news. You didn't know when you began this retreat what feelings or resistances or demons were going to arise. If you had known before you came here what your first three days or four days or five days would have been like, would you have come? Probably not, because we would say, oh, I know what that's like. You know, I've been there before, and that there's nothing that that changes into. 
When we come here, part of the process of coming in here is actually renunciation. That is one of the first steps we make when we come on a retreat. We let go. We let go in ways that we don't know that we're letting go. We let go of familiarity and we let go of control. And we don't know in that letting go what will arise. It's like that pause, that pregnant pause between the letting go of one thing and the unfolding of another. We are also here in this situation deprived of one of the greatest and most major servants of fear and anxiety, which is the capacity to measure and evaluate. We don't have that here. You've noticed in none of our instructions, you know, have we come in here in the morning and said, okay, you know, it's the second day and today you ought to have five breaths in a row and, you know, be rid of this unpleasant feeling and now you should be able to go through a walking without being distracted. We don't come in on the fourth morning and say, okay, well, this is the attainment goal for today, you know, and this is where you should be. You've noticed this. There are no kind of, you know, specific goalposts. Sometimes people feel that maybe they would feel happier you know, if there was kind of a stronger outline about what should be happening, you know. Probably none of you have come to an interview group and been told, oh, you know, you're totally a failure at this, you know. Um, Or nobody has come and been told, you know, oh, you're so successful at this stuff. There's no targets. And because there are no targets, there's also no real map. There's no real map where we can kind of tick off, you know, the steps we've taken, the places we've left, and the next place we're aiming for. There's no kind of definition to this practice, in a way. I mean, in one way there is. There's certainly an unfoldment, and, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of knowable in many ways. But that is never dispensed. That is tremendously freeing and also anxiety-provoking. It frees you to find your own way, to make your own journey, to find a way that is authentic and genuine for you. But it is also anxiety-provoking because there is no way to check and evaluate that and measure that, you know, through our usual reference points, which is comparing ourselves to something else. So we are deprived of that servant of fear, Still, we see ourselves heroically trying to measure and evaluate. You know, the mind is not kind of so quick to kind of let go of this habit. You know, we say, oh, yes, this sitting is a bit better than the last sitting, and, you know, there's a bit more of this and a bit less of that, and that must mean I'm progressing, that very potent word for us. You know, I'm getting somewhere, I'm getting closer to some goal, they haven't talked about it yet, but <laughs> I'm sure I must be getting closer to it. Or we then evaluate the next sitting. Oh, well, I was less concentrated there, and there I was a bit more distracted. That means I'm moving further away from that goal they haven't talked about yet. There are very few signposts which are actually all that reliable in this practice. We actually, I think it is true to say, cannot measure the worth of a single sitting or a single walking. Can any of us measure insight? Can you measure it? 
Can you measure the way that understanding deepens? Can you measure the way understanding may be informing not only this moment, but all the moments in your life? Can you measure or evaluate in any way what you may have learned here? What you may have let go of? What may have been nurtured? It's very difficult. It is very difficult to measure or evaluate anything. Can you measure generosity? Can you measure compassion? Can you measure sensitivity? No. It is not possible to do this. Sometimes in those sittings when we are walkings, when we are so busy trying to measure and evaluate, always through comparison, always through bringing in the past, those sittings that we measure and evaluate might be tempted to measure and evaluate as being terrible, you know, where nothing happened. That may have been the sitting where we learned the most about acceptance, about patience, about forgiveness. That sitting that we may be tempted to label as the good sitting, you know, the terrific sitting. Well, that may be the sitting where we have mostly satisfied clinging most deeply. (laughs) It's quite possible. Or most reinforce the sense of self or the sense of I, you know, through having owned this or possessed that. Having little to rely upon, truly little to rely upon, having so few signposts to take refuge in, it is actually faith and trust that allows us to stay open and present to this moment and to the next moment. And we begin, I think, to appreciate the wisdom of not knowing and the gift that lies within it, how that not knowing is actually what frees us to let go of the past and frees us to let go of the anxiety of the future. How being able to rest with, what know, with not knowing is what allows us to some to come so close to what is, allows us to deepen so, so much in this moment that we are in. I think sometimes we underestimate the power of our own faith. I know sometimes I am absolutely awed and humbled by the quality of commitment and faith that I see people have on retreats. You know, I, we know sometimes, you know, how deeply painful it is for you, how much struggle you go through, how difficult it is to stay present, how many things arise which are so difficult to be with, and you still turn up. I am absolutely awed. Um, Every retreat I teach, I'm so amazed. You know, I put up a schedule and I come in here to sit in the morning and see all these people, and I think, gosh, that's amazing. Nobody dragged them here. You know, there were no monitors taking registration, nobody kind of sweeping them out of their rooms. Here they are. And it is faith that brings us here. And it is faith that leads us to return again and again. It's not just guilt or self-consciousness, you know. It is faith that leads us to return again and again to be with what is, even when that is difficult. Sometimes how within ourselves we know that those very difficulties are our greatest teachers. We know that those very difficulties are where we find some of the most important, lasting, enduring, and profound lessons of our lives. 
we come back even when we know there are other avenues that are available. You know, it's not the easiest thing in the world is to avoid. Avoidance is one of the most available avenues in our world. And so Gaia has teaching you know, one of the yogis told me, you know, she was going through a very difficult time on an extended retreat, you know, that just didn't seem to be changing. And so, you know, she felt like she just really wanted to avoid it. So one of her ways of avoidance, she told me, was that every day after lunch she would go to the store to buy a chocolate bar. You know, that it was a moment of kind of relief that she would go and buy this chocolate bar and eat it. And then she said it started to be, you know, that, you know, one day she kind of realized that she couldn't enjoy doing it anymore. You know, that even, you know, the moment that she got to the store and unwrapped the chocolate bar, there was kind of this little voice within her saying, you don't need to be doing this. You don't need to be doing this. You know, you don't need to be fleeing from what is. Avoidance is no longer enjoyable in the light of awareness. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You may regret this. Avoidance is no longer enjoyable. Avoidance in itself becomes suffering because we are aware that when we take Part in avoidance, we are abandoning ourselves. So we return again and again. Yet that very faith that brings us back also evokes fear. Faith brings us to the cushion and fear makes us want to jump off. Fear is the passageway between knowing and the unknown. Always in our lives. Fear is the passageway. Every time we sit or walk, every time we make a commitment to being awake and open, we are actually almost inviting fear to come. We are opening the door. We are saying, come in, fear. And that fear wears many, many different faces. You know, sometimes the emotions and feelings and mind states we experience on a retreat seems so different and so varied. You know, there's aversion, there's resistance, there's greed, there's anger, there's jealousy, there's dullness. There are so many different emotions we seem to experience. And yet, so often the central theme of all of those emotions is fear. What is aversion? Aversions around the unpleasant. The unpleasant that seems to threaten our sense of self, there is fear. What is greed? It's the fear of not having enough. What is resistance? But the fear of being overwhelmed. What is jealousy? But the fear of being less. What is negativity and anger? But the fear of being challenged or attacked. Fear is the territory of self. It's the resting place of so many of our beliefs in who we are. There is no home for the self in the unknown. There is no home for the self in the unknown. There's a wonderful Christian saying that said, God can only enter when no one is at home. 
Not knowing evokes the presence of the I notion most strongly. You've probably seen that, you know, when you don't know something here, you don't know when something's going to end, you don't know the nature of something that's arising. How strongly this sense of self comes up, wanting to figure it out, wanting to find the right strategy, wanting to be in charge of it. Not knowing also evokes the mystery of being most strongly. The most curious paradox in this practice is that that which we fear the most, you know, that we fear so much, not knowing, not being in control, and that which we long for the most, the freedom that lies in not knowing and the mystery that lies in not knowing, they both lie in the same place. They both lie in the same moment. We struggle with not knowing in many recognizable ways. You know, our resistances, our labeling and evaluations, trying to make our experience, our life, our next moment familiar and known to us. None of our strategies really work. None of them really work. And so sometimes when our strategies don't work, we cultivate the many small doubts, the many small doubts and the big doubts. You know, maybe I'm not right for this practice or this journey. Maybe this practice and this journey is not right for me. You know, maybe this is not the right time in my life. Maybe I don't have the right karma. You know, maybe I don't have the right motivation. All those very many small doubts that seem to offer us some way out of not knowing actually seem to offer us a way into something that we have already known in the past. We begin in meditation practice with a semblance and appearance of knowing ourselves, you know, mostly through information that we have accumulated. We think we know ourselves through our bodies. You know, we have certain familiarity with them. We think we know ourselves through our minds, our thoughts. We think we know ourselves through our roles and our identities. We think we know ourselves through our histories and through what other people know about us. We have then through this pitch, then through all of this, this kind of picture of who we are, this appearance of who we are. Well, in meditation, this picture starts to come unglued because what holds that picture of knowing together is the glue of clinging, is the glue of clinging. And the more calm, the more still, the more clear we find ourselves becoming, that much too does clinging begin to dissolve. And as clinging begins to dissolve, so too do so many of our certainties and so much of our knowing. The truth is that the deeper we go in meditation, the deeper is the dissolution that we experience. 
So at times it really feels like there is nothing to hold on to, nothing to rely upon and no reference place. It also feels like there's nowhere to hide. In that deepening we see very clearly the the pain and suffering that lies within clinging. But not clinging seems to introduce us to a territory we have never known before. And in that dissolution, there is often fear. The fear of being nothing, the fear of being nowhere. In that dissolution, and even in the arising of fear, we actually arrive at a very crucial point in meditation, where there is the dissolving and the falling away of all that we know through clinging. Yet as there is that falling away, there is not yet, not yet, a very clear emergence or a very clear understanding of what that falling away actually means, of what is really present in that dissolution. At that, sometimes at that point where there is the falling away and no clear emergence of understanding or recognition of what that means, sometimes we feel a great anxiety, the most existential fear. We forget in those moments that meditation is intended to disturb us. It is intended to disturb us. This is the point of meditation, to be disturbed. It's not here to feel comfortable and, you know, reassured and complacent about our belief systems, you know, or to kind of, you know, reinforce all of our clinging. That's all we're here for. We're here to be disturbed. It's a wonderful disturbance, you know? It's a, it's a wonderful disturbance. I mean, how else can there be transformation unless there is a disturbance of the old? You know, a disturbance of the knowing, a disturbance of the familiar. Meditation is a powerfully disturbing experience. Not in a negative way. Not in a negative way. That disturbance leads us to question, to deepen, to open. But sometimes when we're disturbed, of course, and there is fear, we forget that this is all about being disturbed. And the first thing that we want to do is we want to put the picture all back together again, you know? And we try and find a way to do that, you know? We try and find, you know, if we can't have the old identity back again, I'm going to try and make a new one. You know, now I'm going to be a meditator and I'm going to have this belief system and know myself through these experiences. And we try desperately to kind of glue all this picture back together again. But if your practice is still and calm, somehow it doesn't work. Clinging doesn't work so well anymore in your life. You know, this is the good news. (laughs) Clinging just doesn't work so well in your life anymore. It doesn't come so automatically, you know. It's like... It comes and it feels sticky. It feels sticky. And instead of feeling comfortable in stickiness, there is actually more the sense, aha, this is some kind of message. You know, this is a message to look more clearly. You know, 
you become unhappy with stickiness. You become unhappy with clinging. And you feel more comfortable with being disturbed. You feel more comfortable with being disturbed. Because you begin, I think, to understand what a tremendously open space that is. Not neurotically disturbed. Just simply not believing in anything so much anymore. Not seeing so much substantiality anywhere anymore. It is a tremendously open space. In that point between knowing and not knowing, faith emerges, a deep inner confidence that allows us to rest in that passageway, to rest with the fear, to allow the dissolving and the falling away to take place with grace and ease and tremendous balance, tremendous balance and confidence that there is, this is an awakening. This is an opening of the heart. It's a Nasruddin story I'd like to read you. Nasruddin's house was on fire, so he ran up to his roof for safety. There he was, precariously perched on the roof, when his friends gathered in the street below, holding a stretched-out blanket for him and shouting, Jump, Mullah, jump! Oh, no, I won't, said the mullah. I know you guys. If I jump, you'll pull the blanket away just to make a fool of me. (laughs) Don't be silly, mullah, they cried. This isn't a joke. We're trying to save your life. This is serious. Jump. No, said Nasruddin. I don't trust any of you. Lay that blanket on the ground and I'll jump. Well, there is a jump we make here. There is actually a jump. Sometimes it's not, you know, a very dramatic jump. Sometimes we are making that leap inwardly, very subtly and very quietly. Sometimes it is dramatic. Where we say, you know, I do surrender separation. I do surrender separation. I allow myself... Or there is the allowing to be so present within not knowing, with the simple unfoldment of what is, without demand, without guarantees, that there is a leap, a leap of faith. And part of that faith is love. (coughs) Having a passion for freedom, a passion for understanding, a great passion for awakening, a great confidence in our capacity for awakening. If we have a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.